Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I'm so happy to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest, and I see a lot of guests in the chat room right now, and you wish to participate in the chat, please just sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I'm also planning on opening the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. And then following the show, you can just continue this discussion on AfroGenius.com and the Research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. In fact, please uh, like both pages. And I also have a Facebook group, so join my Facebook group. And if you want to have get notices about the show, just push the little follow button and you'll get notices. Well, you have heard many family stories on my show, and tonight's show will focus on the Washingtons of Westington Plantation, Stories of My Family's Journey to Freedom, Part 2, with John F. Baker, Jr. Uh, This is a part two because the journey continues, and so I invited John back so he could talk about what's next and what has happened. I have posted on on Facebook the um, documentary that aired on national public television. It was the Westington Plantation, A Family's Road to Freedom. And this film was actually inspired by John's book, The Washingtons of Westington Plantation, Stories of My Family's Journey, and this is what we're talking about, the stories of his family's journey to freedom. So let me give a warm welcome to John F. Baker, Jr., to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, John. Welcome back to the show, because John was on before, so that's why we're calling it part two. So, John, welcome back to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Thank you so much. And I've already someone has already put in the comment section that the documentary on PBX was excellent. And so, Great. of course, you know I want you to talk more about that, but let's kind of take the group back to the beginning of your story. And let's okay. start with the cover on your book. Tell us about the photo on the cover of your book. 
Okay, when I was in the seventh grade, we used a social studies textbook called Your Tennessee. And flipping through the book, I came across a photograph entitled Black Tennesseans, and there were four individuals, and for some reason I was drawn to this photograph. Each time I would go to class, I would look at it thinking that the people in the photo resembled individuals I had seen before, but I had no idea at the time that I was actually staring at my own great-great-grandparents. So shortly after I got out of school for summer vacation, I think it was the plantation's 150th anniversary, so they had a photograph of the White Washington family that founded Westington, and they also had the same photograph that appeared in our social studies textbook. This time they listed their names, and my grandmother happened to be visiting from Chicago, and she spent the weekend with one of her older brothers, and at the conclusion of her visit, she called my mother and told her to come pick her up to have me to bring her camera because she had something that she wanted me to photograph. So um, when we got to my great-uncle's house, my grandmother showed me the newspaper article. And I said, Grandmother, that picture's in our history book. And I was very excited. And so I said, Who is that? And so she told me that the couple seated were her grandparents, uh, Emmanuel and Henny Washington, and they had both been enslaved on Westington Plantation, which uh, most of the locals refer to it as the Washington Farm. So my great-uncle told me that the descendants of the plantation owner still live there, so the next morning I called him up and told him who I was. And so uh, the lady that answered the phone was Ann Talbot, and she was a, a sixth-generation descendant of Joseph Washington who founded the plantation in 1796. And I told her I'd seen the newspaper article and I was interested in my family's history, and she told me that they even still had my great-great-grandfather's portrait in their living room. So uh, she had a bookstore in Springfield, and she agreed to meet me there. And so she brought out... I guess probably eight to ten legal-sized documents which recorded the births of the slaves on the plantation from 1795 to 1860. So I was able to find my great-great-grandfather and mother's exact dates of birth and some of our earlier ancestors as well. And she informed me that the family had deposited all the plantation records in the Tennessee State Library and Archives in Nashville in the 1960s, and this is on 69 rolls of microfilm. It's some 11,000 documents, correspondence, plantation records, and I've gone through all this numerous times, not only to trace my ancestry, but all the other families that came from there. And um, also in the process, I interviewed individuals ranging in age from 80 to 107 years old who were children or grandchildren of former slaves to get their perspective since uh, the slaves didn't leave written records. So that's how it uh, all started, and then it, over a 30-year period, I collected scores of information and then wrote a book that was published in 2009 by Simon & Schuster. Right. What a what an amazing journey, and to find somebody, to actually meet someone, to provide you with documents. I mean, I, I just can't believe it. I, I wish, and I think all of us wish that something like that uh, would happen. So let's talk about the plantation for a minute. Tell us again where the plantation okay. is, is is located and then what prompted you since we already know you saw the picture, uh you saw the picture in the textbook, your your grandmother then you know, shared more information with you in the newspaper. But what about taking the writing it in a book? I mean, what what took you to that level where you decided, okay, it's time for me to write it in a book? Well, I've been interviewing all these people for years and years. I've been collecting information. So uh, my mother urged me that she said, you know, you've been collecting all this information forever. And she said, you have 
stuff in drawers, closets, boxes, here, there, and everywhere. <laughs> and it would be a shame if something happened to you and all that information down the drain. And she said, furthermore, some of the elderly people that you interviewed, no one else could go back and interview those people and, and make you know some of the connections that you can't find in records. So I thought about what she said, so I pulled all the information together over a couple of years, and then I started writing the book. And so I pretty much went step-by-step step how my journey started with finding the photograph and how I interviewed different individuals and the information that I found uh, in the Washington Family Papers. Well, thank goodness that your mother encouraged you to, to put these documents together in a book. I mean, so many people right now just grabbing materials and collecting things and talking to people, but they haven't told that story yet. They have not put that right. story in a book. And so, I mean, I just want you right now just to tell those people who are out there, those who are listening, why this is important to tell the story. Well, it's very important to tell the story because, uh, like I said before, some of the connections that we have now, some elderly individuals, if we don't record this and get it down somewhere, it's going to be lost to time. So it's very, very crucial, especially as African Americans, to get all this story down because a lot of information that we have that's passed down orally uh, we don't find any documentation, of course, from the plantation owner's perspective. He's writing from his side of the story. So it's very important to get, you know, the other perspective. Yes, and we have a question coming out of the chat. What was the procedure okay. process uh, that you used to find an interested publisher? Okay, I submitted um, a book proposal to several agents. I went on the Internet and found various agents that had um, gotten books published about black history or Civil War, things of that nature. So I sent the uh, book proposal to, I think, 10 agents in, in New York in February of 2007. I sent another set in February, uh, another set in March, and one of the original Ten contacted me, and he said that he believed that he could get my book published, and so uh, he submitted it to several book publishers, and then Simon and Schuster made an offer, about in a month's time, I guess. Mhm. Okay. So, uh, okay, and I mean, there, but I, there's I had a... the book totally completed before I even tried to get um, an agent. Is that right? Now, was I mean, I, I see that the size of the book was the book this large, or did you have to cut uh, some areas out of the book? Or some I had to cut quite a uh, a bit out of the book. Uh, my editor at Simon and Schuster said, for the first time in her career, she after she got all the information that I had, she said she felt that she had bitten off more than she could chew. So she said, John, you have enough information for ten books. There's no way all this stuff can get in one book. So there was, you know, quite a bit that I had to leave out. Right. Well, John, I want you to tell us about the information that's not in the book. But before you do that, uh, just uh, once again, I, I, I didn't really get to the point where I wanted you to tell us about the plantation. Tell us about the layout of plantation. What What's in it? What does it look like? And then we'll go back to the information that was not in the book. Okay. Uh, Westington Plantation at its peak uh, right before the Civil War was 13,100 acres in one continuous farm. It's located in Cedar Hill, Tennessee, which is northwest of Nashville, about 30, 35 miles or so. Um, this was the largest tobacco plantation in America right before the Civil War. It was the second largest producer of tobacco in the world, 
and they held a slave population of 274 enslaved African Americans, which was the largest slave population in the state of Tennessee. And and then how was it laid out? Was this a self-contained plantation, or did they have to uh, go outside the plantation to get certain goods to sustain uh, the, the, the people? Uh, the plantation was entirely self-sufficient. And then how many so uh, slave individuals were on the plantation? 274. 274 family members. Okay, and so with your research, you said you you research every single family member. Is that what you did? Yes, I've done research on every slave that ever lived at Westington that could be documented, and uh, that's about 450 individuals because, you know, um, there was 274 in 1860, but many, you know, of course, before that period um, came to the plantation died there. So in all, there's around... 450 individuals that were enslaved on that plantation. Okay, and so you're counting the the children uh, as well as the adults, of course. Yes. Okay. Now, there's a question coming out of the chat. Since you said you had so much information, is book two on the horizon? Yes, it is. (laughs) Well, we certainly want to hear about book two, but please take us, to some of the selected bibliography of primary sources you reviewed at the Tennessee State Library and Archives uh, in the Washington Family Papers. Just help us understand what those documents uh, contain. Okay, and take as Washington much time Family as you need because we really want to hear about the documents that you use. Okay, in the Washington Family Papers, um, there's over 11,000 documents um, one of the main sources I used in the collection to trace the genealogies were the slave bills of sale. And from 1801 to 1843, um, the Washingtons purchased, I think, around 145 slaves. So in these slave bills of sale, the earliest one I found that I could trace to direct ancestors was for my own ancestor. Uh, my great-great-great-grandmother was um, Jenny Blow Washington, and she was born 1792 in Sussex County, Virginia. Joseph Washington purchased her and her sister, Sarah, at age 10 and 12, and this is shown on the documentary, and brought them to Westington. So I was able to find nearly every slave that they purchased on the plantation so I could trace uh, back where they came from before they got to Westington. And our county deed books uh, also recorded some of these slave bills of sale transactions. There are lots of um, correspondence in the Washington family paper where the second owner of Westington was George A. Washington, and he traveled extensively. Um, He went to New Orleans where they sold the tobacco crops. He went to Maryland and Virginia to purchase slaves. He went to New York to make investments. So while he was away, his mother, his father, the plantation overseer, and his wife and, and business associates would write him letters, and they would state what's going on on the plantation, who had a child, who died, uh, which slave ran away. And there's one that tells about the Native Americans on the Trail of Tears coming to the plantation to get food and water before they're marched out to the reservations. Um, there's a special a lot of information during the Civil War, because during this time, uh, George A. Washington was in New York, 
And so his mother and his wife would write letters of what's going on. Um, the Union Army came to the plantation. They seized some of the men from the plantation to work on military fortifications in Nashville. So there's so much um, correspondence that you even get to know these people's personalities. And, and my mother I, often says, if you didn't know any better, you would swear that I knew some of them personally. I bet you did. Why don't you give us an example of, uh, let's say, uh, what did you find in George A. Washington's diary? Okay, in, in George A. Washington's uh, diary, it starts off typically uh, how hot it was, how hot it was. He records that it, it's 85 degrees. It's Saturday. He states that the slaves are working on their own tobacco crops. Uh, there's letters where during Christmas he states that um, they have that week off, and if any of them worked for him during that period, uh, he paid them. Uh, there's also um, in his diary different slaves that ran away from the plantation. Um, he mentions um, some of his neighbors sending uh, slaves by him to New Orleans to sell. Uh, that type of information is in there. Yes. Uh, he and mentions... Um, he mentions um, the uh, doctor coming to the plantation to treat various slaves for various ailments. So there, there's all types of stuff in there. Yeah, I can just imagine. Now, how long did it take you to do this? Because you're going through every single letter, every single bill of sale, deeds. I mean, this is Court an cases. arduous task. Court cases. I mean, this is really a, a, an arduous uh, case. Did you have help? <laughs> no, I didn't have any help. <laughs> so it was a. I did it single-handedly, but uh, I enjoyed every minute of it. Gee whiz! Well, tell us about a court case, because I, I know all of this is just kind of just rolling in your head. So you can just tell us <laughs> about court cases and what have you. Give us an example of a court case you uh, you reviewed. Okay, there was one court case where George A. Washington's uh, wife, Jane Smith's uh, mother, owned a plantation in um, Florence, Alabama, and so um, she wanted to free her mother wanted to free the slaves on the plantation, which it was illegal for women to do it at that time in Alabama. So uh, this minister from the north told her that if she would marry him, that he would free the slaves. So she married him. And he reneged on this promise, and he, he, he would not free the slaves. And she even left instructions and money in her will to emancipate them and send them to Liberia. So there was a court case, but uh, he won out. And so uh, she intended for him to be free, but they ended up being, remaining enslaved. Wow. Now, you also, yes, and and that's that's one of, of many and I noticed that uh, you you cited uh, several letters in your book, and I'd like you to tell us about the letter from the plantation manager, Benjamin Sims. Okay, there are several uh, letters from Benjamin Sims, and in one he writes about a slave named Lewis, I think in 1840. And Lewis was hired out to an ironworks in Kentucky. And so he meets a guy that's a blacksmith. So this blacksmith persuades him to run away, but he gets captured. And so the overseer, Benjamin Sims, promises this guy, Lewis, that he would not punish him if he would tell him what prompted him to run away. So uh -huh. he was probably in fear that, you know, there was a mass rebellion planned or other slaves that were planning on running, so he wanted to find out. So, of course, after he told him 
why, you know, he ran away. It was their plan to go to Canada, and the blacksmith was going to teach him his trade, and, and they had planned to go into business uh, together. So Sims uh, wrote a letter and told Mr. Washington that, that he captured Lewis and he got the information from him, and then he whipped him anyway. Oh, wow. That's of uh, individuals running away from the plantation? Pardon? You cut Do out you have, oh, I'm sorry. Do you have uh, uh, incidents of individuals running away from the plantation? Oh, yes. yes, there was and, one slave uh, named Davy, and uh, mm-hmm. he ran away more than any of the other slaves. Uh, the Washingtons purchased him and his four brothers in the 1830s. So uh, Davy ran away, and he was getting ready to cross the Ohio River, and a sheriff caught him, and he had a hatchet. And he attacked the sheriff, and he was brought back to Washington. So the Washingtons determined after the fourth attempt to sell Davy, and he was sold in the New Orleans slave market. And he was only one of two slaves that was ever sold uh, from the plantation. After the Civil War, Davy came back to the area, uh, got with his uh, three brothers that were uh, still living, and then they later moved to uh, Nashville. Mm-hmm. Well, at least he did get back with his family members. Yes, at least he did get back. Still remain. And there was one case, I found a letter after the book was published, where uh, Jane Smith had a slave that came from the estate of uh, her father in Florence, Alabama. And this Mm -hmm. guy made it into free territory into Canada. So he wrote Jane's aunt a letter in Nashville, and he said he didn't know who she may have married or, or whatever, but he was willing to pay her what she felt that he was valued at. Um, so somehow he had had the funds. So evidently he must have had relatives who were still enslaved in the South that he planned on uh, freeing them as well. Or otherwise it wouldn't have made sense if he's free in Canada to make an offer, you know, to purchase his freedom. That's right. That's right. Now you have a, a chapter in your book. We built that big house brick by brick. Tell us about yeah. that. Well, uh, one of the first individuals that I interviewed was Maddie Terry, and she and I went to church together, and she passed away when she was 93 years old. And her great-grandmother, Sarah Cheatham, uh, was born in Westington in 1810, lived to be 104 years old. And she said that when she was a small child, her great-grandmother would get her grandkids and great-grandkids all together, and she would tell them different stories of when they were enslaved. And one was the building of the Westington Mansion, uh, the Westington Mansion uh, sits on a high hill, and there's a steep slope behind the big house, and then the land flattens out, and there's a stream that runs through there. So Sarah had told Maddie and, and her other descendants that she and some of the other slave children and some of the women had gone to the creek bed, collected clay, brought it up on the hill where Westington now stands, and the adults molded and made the bricks. And she said evidently they knew what they were doing because the house is still standing and the mansion was started in 1815 and completed in 1819, and it still stands, and it's on the National Register of Historic Places. Uh, Maddie also said her great-grandmother could still chop her own firewood uh, at 104 and still thread a needle without using glasses. Oh, wow. That is amazing. It it, it is absolutely amazing at 104 years old. Wow. (laughs) Well. You know, there's just so, so much. This is such a fascinating story, but we're going to take a quick break, come back, and we're going to talk about some of the, some of the individuals and the surnames of, of the 
uh, former slaves on the Westington Plantation. I want you to tell people who those people are. So quick break, and we'll be right back. Okay. All right. Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history, and all of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Also, some of my shows are archived on my website, Jeannie B. Roots, and if you don't want to go to Blog Talk Radio and just want to go to the archive shows on my website, you can see them and, and just download them. Well, we have been listening to John F. Baker, Jr., share this wonderful story about the Washington, uh, the Washingtons of Washington Plantation, stories of my family's journey to freedoms. And he has really already, I mean, kind of set the tone to let us know about the wonderful stories. And we have a comment coming out of the chat. This is from Mark Lowe, and he said he loves hearing you tell these stories, and so do I. Well, let's go and back to some of the people who were enslaved on the plantation. And I know that all of the slaves did not have the Washington surname. So please right. tell us about one of the slave families with the surname Gardner, and then tell us about some of the other surnames that you have found since you have been doing this research. Okay. Uh, when I was a young man, I attended church with uh, Reverend Sam Gardner, and he passed away when he was 98. And he told me that the Washingtons had purchased his grand, uh, his great grandmother and great grandfather, and their three sons. It was Aaron Gardner, his wife Betty, their sons uh, Daniel, Jackson, and George. So after he told me this, I went through the Washington uh, family papers, and I found the actual slave bill of sale where the Washingtons purchased them. Uh, in 1839, uh, the Gardner, uh, there's more African-Americans carrying the Gardner surname than any other family uh, in our county. So there, there's hundreds of them, literally. And um, they've been having a family reunion ever since the 1930s. And this coming weekend, well, next weekend, next Saturday, uh, as part of that reunion, I'm going to take them on a tour of the exhibit uh, of Westington, then take them out to the plantation, and then they're going to have a big family dinner uh, the following day. And then I always give them a, um, a history of their family there at Westington. 
Uh, some of the other families at Westington were the Lewis family. George A. Washington, in 1844, married Margaret Adelaide Lewis of Nashville, and her father owned the plantation called Fairfield. And as a wedding gift, he gave them 29 slaves for $1. So most of these slaves took the Lewis surname after they were emancipated. Another family was the Terry family. The Washingtons purchased five men um, from Nathaniel Terry of uh, Todd County, Kentucky, and most of those descendants also carried the Terry surname. Many of them carried Cheatham, uh, Green, White, and, and several others. Most of the uh, African-American families that carried Washington were some of the earliest families. But um, they mainly took the surnames of previous owners more of a connection to their own families than they did, you know, the slave owner. Oh, okay. So we have the the Washingtons, of course, the Terry, Lewis, Cheatham, Green, and White. And White so, and many and, others. And, and many others. But you actually have documentation on all of these particular families, or are you saying that you have these and more? Those and more. Those and more. Okay. Well, this is so very interesting. Now, I want to know, since you wrote this book and the book has been published, what was the re general reaction of the, the people or the descendants of the Washingtons and the Westingtons? Of the White Washington family or the African-American descendants? Both. Which, which one? Both. Uh, the african <laughs> Okay, both. The African-American descendants from the Lewis's, Greens, Cheatham's, Washington's, they're all very excited when I uh, share this information with them. Uh, Reverend Sam Gardner, when I told him about the, the bill of sale, I actually copied it and took it to him, and so he was really excited because he knew his great, I mean, he knew his grandfather personally, but he didn't know his great-grandparents, so he was excited to find that out. Um, many descendants from all over the country have made contact with me about trying to trace their ancestry and then when they make the connection I can tell them you know going back to the 1700s in most cases so they're very very excited the white washington family has also been uh very excited about my research they've been very helpful from the very beginning when I started as a very young man as a teenager and even um this past summer some of the Washington family, the White Washington family, who are descendants of the plantation owner, uh, came to Nashville, had a family reunion. They toured uh, the exhibit, and after that, they came out to Westington. And there's about 70 of them, and so they uh, toured Westington, and then I gave them a history of their family and my family and, and all the others. So they were very excited because they'd never ever gotten together before. So he continues, oh, so, and yeah. even working with the exhibit. Uh, some of the White Washington family members had uh, other photographs of my great-great-grandfather and mother, uh, my great-great-grandfather's oldest sister, and other family members. And also um, one lady attended the exhibit uh, program. She was 97 years old, and I never met her before. And her grandmother was a slave at Westington, so she invited me to her home the next week, and I went there, and she had photographs of her grandmother, her grandmother's sister. She had stories about their family at Westington, which uh, backed up some of the things that, you know, I had been told from other slave families. Wow. How exciting. Wow. Well, since you've mentioned the exhibit, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the exhibit? Okay. Um, in 
2012, uh, Rob DeHart, who is the curator of the exhibit, contacted me, and he had worked at Traveler's Rest, another historic uh, place in the Nashville area. So he knew about my work at Washington, and he had consulted me about finding out more about the African Americans at Traveler's Rest where he worked. So he later went to the Tennessee uh, State Museum, and so when they decided to do um, an exhibit on African American history uh, or a plantation, he suggested that they uh, base it off my book. So they hired me as a consultant for that, and the exhibit opened uh, February of this year, and it goes through uh, August 31st. And up to June, uh, there's been 50,000 visitors, and I think the last week that school was in, that there were 75 school kids that visited in one week. So they've had visitors that ranged in age from a couple of years old to 97 years old. And this past Saturday, I did a program uh, about my research and book and so forth. And I had uh, some relatives from New Jersey that I'd never met before, some from Chicago. I had some some others from Chicago that I had, you know, I've always known. And some of the one I'd always known and the new cousins, they live like 15 minutes apart, so they exchange numbers, and so they're going to keep in contact. So it's been very exciting. I've been finding... um, a lot of other relatives that I didn't know I had, so there's a lot of advertisement about the um, exhibit. So this has flushed out a lot of people that we wouldn't have otherwise made contact. And some of these people have photographs and stories and so forth. Well, and it's and it's wonderful to have people come forward with photographs because they right. also yes. have right. stories. They also have stories right. to tell. Uh, you uh, mentioned that you had enough documentation for a second book. Are you going? Are you thinking of including some of the newfound family member photos in your your book? Yes, I plan to use those and uh, some of the photographs that I was not able to use in the book. Um, I have slave lists from the plantation from 1793 up to 1863. Uh, that I basically can recreate a census for uh, for 1813, 1820, 30, 40, 50, 60 on the plantation. I have a list of all the men from the plantation that enlisted in the Union Army. I have records of uh, every slave that ever lived at Westington. Uh, it's about 450 individuals. I um, have up to uh, the last time they appeared on any census, up to the 1940 census. Um, I have um, some of the slaves that married. I've gone through Freedmen's Bureau records that list um, sharecropping agreements that some of the former slaves at Westington uh, engaged in with uh, some of the other uh, farmers surrounding Westington. I've got sharecropper and domestic labor agreements with the Washington and some of the former slaves. I also have sharecropper contracts with the Washington family and some of the white families because after emancipation, a number of the slaves left never came back. Then the Washingtons were forced to uh, use another labor source, so they got other African Americans and whites that worked uh, on the plantation, so I have information on those families as well. 
So right. there are worlds and, and worlds of information to include. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, right now we're just salivating because we want to see that second book <laughs> uh, with all of the documents that you have just mentioned. I can imagine what we will see in that second book. Well, there's a question coming out of the chat. Has there ever been a homecoming primarily for the descendants of the enslaved people, kind of like the event at Somerset Homecoming? We've never had a combined uh, homecoming, but there are several families, enslaved families from Westington, that have been having family reunions for 40, 50, some 70 years. So um, some of these individual families, when they have their family reunions, I'll go and do a presentation and then take them on tours to the plantation. But we haven't had a family reunion of just all the combined families. Right, right. Today, it, it could be mm-hmm. tens of thousands of descendants because I have a family tree that's exhibited at the um, museum starting with my great-great-great-great-grandparents starting in 1760 down to 2012. And there's over uh, 1,000 direct descendants on that tree alone. So that's just one couple. So you think you've got nearly 300 people and how many descendants that would be today. So there's that's you know, right. tens of thousands. Of individuals that's, throughout that's the country. That's right, but can you um, and, imagine an event such as that one to bring all of the descendants? That that would be mind-boggling for your community for certain. Yeah, it would. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are still thousands that live here in Springfield, uh, where I live, whose ancestors came from Washington. Right. Now, you know, there's a comment coming out of the chat that you will recognize by your county commissioners this year and dedicated uh, John F. Baker, Jr. Day. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Well, why don't um, you t- uh, tell us about the documentary. How did it get started and how long did it take? And then I'll ask you some more questions after you tell us about the documentary. Okay, uh, the um, National Public Television contacted the Tennessee State Museum uh, when they found out that they were going to do the exhibit. And at that time, they were not able to uh, fund uh, doing a documentary. So later, someone donated funds to have it produced. And so uh, they contacted me and asked me would I serve as a consultant uh, on that, and and I, I agreed to. And it went rather fast, a lot faster than I thought it would. So I think they worked on it about a month. And so basically it details, um, it starts off with my great-great-great-grandmother Jenny and her sister Sarah. Um, They were born slaves in Sussex County, Virginia, and uh, they were originally owned by Colonel Michael Blow. Uh, He was a Revolutionary uh, War soldier. He passed away in 1799. He owned a plantation of about 50 slaves. And so 15 of them went to his son, Makaja Blow, and in a couple of years he had financial problems, and so he sold my great-great-great-grandmother and her sister to Joseph Washington, and he brought them here to Tennessee, and there's been 11 generations of our family born here uh, since that time. It also shows how the plantation developed from uh, a small farm up to being the largest tobacco plantation in America, second largest producer in the world. It uh, gives some light on some of the other slave families uh, that were there at Westington. Now, how did it feel to actually see this documentary 
and to see the reenaction of Jenny, your great 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 grandmother, and Sarah. Uh, it, it was very exciting to actually think uh, these were not ideas, but in, in my head from going years back, but that uh, someone was actually taking, you know, my information and, and making it that real. It was very exciting to see that come to reality. Yes, but was it was it something emotion? I mean, beyond excitement. I mean, how from an emotional perspective to realize that your your ancestors are are really you're looking at them. It's almost like you you're taking a step back in, in time, although you've already done it because you've looked at all those documents. Right. But you know, when you just think about people looking at documents and seeing enslaved individuals, or seeing uh, violence, seeing uh, uh, people, families torn apart. Just how how does that feel? Well, seeing uh, them, uh, I guess it sort of brought home the whole aspect of them as two little girls, ten and twelve. I'm sure they were frightened, being taken hundreds of miles away from their parents' uh, extended family, never to see them again. And uh, I've had a lot of people that contacted me uh, that grew up with me while I was doing the research, and so. They were saying, you know, we've known that you were doing all this research all these years, and we know that you wrote a book and, and we've read it, but it had a different meaning. Actually seeing mm-hmm. it on, on television, it made it uh, more of a reality for them as well. Yes, I, I guess it really did make it more of a reality. And then what was just the general reaction of people, let's say when you had the premiere showing of the documentary, and how did uh, people react to the the first showing. Uh, I got a lot of calls from that. Uh, it uh, uh, made a lot of people interested in doing their own family uh, trees. Uh, they said that you know you've done all this and we've heard about you you doing it. I want to do it you know on my family. What does it take? Uh, what kind of records did you use? Uh, what first steps you know should I take for tracing my ancestry? Will I be able to trace mine you know back that far? or uh, what sources did you use? And a lot of people say, well, you know, I have my great aunt that lives somewhere, and she's 95, but I've never gotten a chance to talk to her. So I urge people, you know, to get this information from their relatives and record it. Mm-hmm. And do you provide uh, training or you educate people on how to use records and how to go about doing what you have done? Yes, I do. And and how do how do they get in touch with you so that you can can do this? Well, I have a website, Wessington W E S S Y N G T O N dot com, and they can contact me through there. And and they can contact you through your website, and then you would be willing to provide them with training. Well, I want people yes. to know they that I do have the phone on there. Yes, please, please watch the documentary. It has been on Facebook several times, and I hope that individuals have taken uh, an opportunity to to look at it and to really understand what what slavery was like. Uh, There's a comment coming out that John's work is the kind of thing that really inspires others to pursue their own history in contrast to the history of celebrities that we watch so often, and what do you think about that? Yes, all of us have you know similar stories, but 
you know, ours is just as important as some star. So, you know, even more so, it should be to to our own families. So I, I would urge anyone, you know, to trace their own ancestry. And I guess the, the what what's being said, though, I mean, is just as you just said, we all have a story. And you don't have to be a movie star. You don't have to be a celebrity. Right. But your family ahead, members, right. yes, to, to do exactly what you've done. Your family members uh, went through a, a, a life-changing experience, and you have the documentation to support all of the experiences they've had, even to the right. point of when they went from enslavement to freedom. Do you have any information about any of the slaves being manumitted? Uh, no, there's no uh, documentation of any slave from Washington ever being uh, emancipated before the Civil War. Never. And Never. and just what and what happened when freedom came uh, to the uh, to the slaves? What did they do? Okay, some of them, uh, of course, was excited, and they, they've been praying for this for generations. Uh, some of them, as soon as they got word that the war had broken out and they were possibly going to be freed, some of them freed themselves by running away. And uh, Mr. Washington um, decided that to prevent some of these from running away, he offered 18 of the men on the plantation that were still left that hadn't run away that he would pay them $10 per month if they would stay and work. So all of them signed an agreement that they would work for him. In a couple of months, all 18 of them ran away. I guess they con uh, came to the conclusion that he was just trying to keep them on the plantation. So they all ran away. Um, a lot, till there was only three or four people left on the plantation. Many of them went to Nashville. Some of them were in the contraband camps. Uh, some of them went back and forth from the plantation to Nashville. Uh, the people that were in Nashville would uh, meet people from the Union Army, the Freedmen's Bureau, and they would say, go back to the plantations. Uh, they're going to split them up. Every grown man's going to get 40 acres and a mule. So some of these slaves would go back to the plantation, stake out their spot that they hoped to get. And the mistress of the plantation would tell them, well, if you're not going to work, you're going to have to get off the plantation. And so they would send her word back, uh, we're not going to get off and we're not going to work either. So there was a lot of turmoil uh, during that period. Some of them left. Some of them went to Nashville and stayed there. Some of them eventually moved up north. Some went out west, and then they dispersed, you know, all over the country. Um, some of the former slaves came back to Westington, and a lot of people ask me, well, why did they come back there if they were enslaved there? Um, some of them worked for others under the sharecropping system, say, a year or two, and then most people lost pretty much everything they had during the war. So some of these people, after they had worked a year or so, the uh, landowner was unable to pay them. Mr. Washington, due to his financial uh, strategies, was even wealthier after the Civil War than he was before. So they knew at least that uh, he had the capability of paying them, so that's why some of them returned back to Westington. Some of them uh, worked there the rest of their lives. Uh, some of them worked long enough to save up enough money to purchase their own farms. There was a, uh, John Lewis, who was a slave there. He owned a farm of about 100 acres. Um, Wiley Terry, who was born a slave, he and two of his sons purchased 429 acres of land, part of which was part of the land that they were enslaved on. Uh, Joseph Scott was another slave. Um, he purchased a, a small farm, about 20 acres, and donated some of the land that uh, he owned for a school for the former slaves in their community. 
Wonderful to hear that. Now, there's a question coming out of the chat. How many join the U.S. Uh, colored troops? Uh, the number that I can document, there's about 15 of them. I have their pension applications when they um, were older men and, and they applied to get their pensions. Uh, there's all kind of genealogical information in these pension records. Um, one individual, Frank Washington, stated that he knew that he was 12 years old when the war broke out because the Washingtons uh-huh. didn't start their children to doing any type of work until they were 12. He said, however, when he was 12, he was as large as most full-grown men. So when uh, Union soldiers came through the area to take men to work on the military fortifications in Nashville, they grabbed him up too, and he said that uh, he recalled his mother running out of the house screaming that he's only 12, but they took him anyway. Oh, and, uh, wow, and you, and you found that document. I just love this. This is this is amazing. This is wonderful. Uh, I just want you to share with the group, though, you actually have a chart in the book, Rebellious Slaves on Westington, 1838 to 1860. Tell us about some of the rebellious <laughs> slaves on the plantation and the documentation you found about them. Okay. I'll call these the plantation rebels. And uh, <laughs> in the Washington correspondence, there's letters stating which slaves ran away. There's, uh, I think the earliest was a slave named Jack. He ran away. There's another slave named Axum, and uh, he attacked the plantation overseer. There was one slave named Henry. He was sold by a man named Thomas Williamson for $750. So Henry went back to the guy's house that sold him, broke into his house, and took part of the money that uh, he received for selling him in the first place. And so in the Washington papers, there's a notice where the sheriff came to the plantation looking for part of this money, and they searched the house. They never found that. Um, Of course, there was uh, Davy, the gentleman that ran away four times and nearly crossed over into free territory before um, he was captured. There were many instances where some of the slaves uh, attacked overseers. So uh, there was a lot of rebellion against the system. They also would uh, break tools to slow down the work on the plantation. Um, the Washingtons also owned a 1,250-acre plantation in Todd County, Kentucky, and uh, it was about 87 slaves, and most of them men, ranging in age from 15 to 35. And so they would often at night have like a rodeo, and they would get on mules and horses and, and have races among themselves, and then they would have the mules and horses too tired to you know, do much work the next day. So there's documentation in uh, George A. Washington's diary where, you know, the mules and horses, you know, are not doing what they think they should, and then they determined later on uh, that they had been ridden, you know, uh, overnight. Sometimes the slaves would leave and go visit wives or or other relatives from other plantations uh, without permission, Uh, all types of things. Uh, There's one letter that states that, a whole group of slaves, uh, without permission, they went to someone else's plantation. To uh, There was a slave named Jeff, and he was getting married, so they all went to this wedding uh, without getting permission uh, for leaving the premises. And what happened to them? Uh, Mr. Washington got on them about leaving the uh, plantation, but nothing else was done in that case. Nothing else was done. Well, I mean, I can't let you continue to talk without telling us about the church in the hollow. Tell us about what was okay. going on as far as the religion and um, and the slaves. Okay. Um, uh, religion was forbidden at Westington, 
And one theory that I have is that Nat Turner led a rebellion in Southampton County, Virginia, in 1831. Um, Joseph Washington, who settled Westington, was from Southampton County, Virginia, and many of his former neighbors, neighbors of his family that still lived there, were murdered. So the slaves were not allowed to have any religious services on the plantation, so they did this secretly in their homes or out in the woods. So after they were emancipated, uh, they founded them and other African Americans in this community called Turnersville, which is close to the plantation. They established the Antioch Baptist Church, and one of the uh, first pastors of the church was Edmund White Washington, who was a former Westington slave. And he and his wife also served as teachers because the church was also used as a school, and they later hired one of the Fifth Jubilee singers to teach school there which this was a great sacrifice because parents had to pay $1 per month per child, which was a big sacrifice because some of them were only making 50 cents a day. I also found that some individuals old as 40 years old was going to school to learn, to the Antioch Church School to learn to read and write. Right, and, but uh, education meant freedom. Right. So it was well worth the sacrifice. Yes. Well worth the sacrifice. Now you uh, you you take us through this part, and you did tell us about some of the families that that own land. But I know that you uh, talk about generations in transition. And so, what can you tell us about some of the generations in transition and the information you uncovered and and wrote about them? Okay, I found that uh, some of the former slaves at Westington, some of them left, some of them purchased their own farms, some of them went into uh, business for themselves, some of them migrated uh, to Nashville, like the Green family. Uh, many of them became attorneys. Um, they owned a lot of rental property. Uh, and many of them, uh, their direct descendants still do and, and still live in the area. They have a large family reunion uh, every year, and I've done research on, on their family uh, for mm-hmm. them as well. Mm-hmm. So it basically tells where, that some of the families left the south, some of them moved up north, uh, migrated, you know, all o- over the country. Right, right. And there's a back to, you know, although we were talking about families in transition, there is a question about the church. Do, do any of the churches still stand to this day? Uh, yes, Antioch Baptist Church uh, still stands it's, uh, in a small community called uh, Turnersville, and there are still many direct descendants of former Westington slaves that attend the church. Wow, this is just great. And let's just talk about DNA. I mean, have have any of the um, descendants taken DNA tests uh, to check out their relationships to not only each other but to some of the slave owners? Uh, okay, uh, there's been about 30 individuals that have taken uh, DNA tests to find their African origins. Um, as far as connections to the plantation owner, uh, we have not found direct descendants um, on uh, them to get DNA samples as of yet. As of yet, but is there a plan? Well, there's a possibility. Uh, one uh, descendant of Granville, Washington, uh, left the area and moved to Texas, the last I've heard from, of him, and I haven't been able to trace his descendants. So, uh that person's family would be required to do that, and I have been un- been unable to uh, locate him. 
Wow. Okay, well, now there's one more question. What is the relationship between the local Wessington slave descendants with the local white population? Their relationship, how? I mean, there are, there are literally thousands of direct descendants of Wessington slaves uh, throughout our county. So that, that would be hard to say. That would be hard What's to say. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Well, believe it or not, do you know it's the end of the show? <laughs> and I want to know <laughs> if you have any parting words of, of wisdom to share with our listeners regarding the, you know, the research process, the documentation, the writing of the book, just whatever words of wisdom that you feel would help others okay. uh, to move forward with their own genealogy. Uh, to keep searching, uh, never give up. Um, when I was doing research, it was like I'd leave no stone unturned, uh, no matter how remote the possibility seemed that I would, you know, wouldn't give up till I found something. So That's you right. have to be persistent in, in your researching, and uh, don't give up. It's not easy. It's not easy to do, but uh, persistence pays off. Yes, but it sounds like persistence definitely paid off for you, and persistence will pay off to others. So I think your advice, never give up, keep searching, is certainly wonderful and great advice for everyone. Well, thank you so much for joining us to share part two of the journey, and we certainly want you to continue to share with us. Please come back whenever you want to just okay, let us know what's going on. Uh, you know, you're always welcome on this show. So thank you right, so much. Okay. And so I want everyone to just have a, a great evening, and thank you so much, John F. Baker, Jr., for sharing uh, this intriguing research journey with us tonight. And then please remember, everyone, your ancestors left footprints. And if you just listened to what John had to say, there were footprints all over the place. I mean, he actually found all of this wonderful documentation. So you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, diaries, research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, remember, everyone, to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji. And I see Angela in the chat room. Hi, Angela. And nurturing our roots with Antoinette Harrell on uh Tuesdays and Thursdays. So thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. Hey, I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Have a great evening. Good night.